This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Immunizations are one of the greatest success stories in modern medicine, and it's estimated that they've saved more lives and prevented more disabilities than any other medical intervention. They're probably responsible more than any other medical advance in contributing to our increased longevity. They're extremely cost-effective and much less costly than the disease they're designed to prevent. In summary, their benefits far outweigh the very small risks they carry. Today we'll discuss an update in immunizations and we'll review new information regarding immunizations and how we as clinicians can increase our patients' immunization rates. Our guest is Dr. Robert Jacobson, a pediatrician and expert in immunizations from the Department of Pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Bob, welcome and thank you for joining us again. It's been a while since we've had you uh, as a guest and covered this topic. Well, thank you for having me back. There have been numerous changes with vaccines that affect what we offer, what we can offer to our patients, uh, young and old. You know, I looked at some of the questions that we covered the last time we met, and it was in early 2020. One of the questions was, do you think there'll ever be a vaccine for COVID-19? So I guess we can skip that one. (laughs) Well, why don't we start by having you tell us what is new in the world of immunizations? I think the biggest changes for us this year in 2022 are, first of all, continued changes with what COVID-19 vaccines are available and how we should use them as uh, healthcare providers. But we also have changes with flu vaccination, as well as with pneumococcal vaccination, both for our oldest patients, as well as for young adults with certain risk conditions, as well as our children. Then finally, a new problem that appeared is the problem of monkeypox, a disease that we had not seen in this country and that several countries such as ours are now suffering, whereas before it was not an issue. And we have a vaccine now that can give us and our patients protection. Well, let's start with kind of a basic question. Which gives better immunity, the vaccine or actually acquiring the natural infection? The short answer is the vaccines. The longer answer is we got to recognize some of our vaccine preventable diseases don't actually give us any protection from getting it again. Tetanus or lockjaw, we vaccinate with the tetanus, diphtheria, cellular pertussis vaccine. And we have managed with that vaccine to reduce the number of cases of tetanus in this country down to less than a hundred in a decade. It's an amazing vaccine, very successful. But when you get tetanus, from a dirty wound, a puncture wound, or some other injury, even if you develop lockjaw or tetanus, you get no protection against the next round. You get no immunity. And COVID-19 is a great example of how the immunity from natural disease pales to the immunity one gets from the vaccine, and it does not replace it. In fact, studies have clearly shown those people who have previously had COVID respond further in a way not expected to the COVID vaccine in terms of strengthening their immunity and being better protected than those who just have the disease without the vaccination. 
and frankly, with tetanus, with COVID, the vaccine is always safer. Think about rabies, a nearly 100% fatal disease. No one gets the rag about the natural immunity they get from a rabies. They die from it. Hepatitis B may not kill you right away. In fact, is indolent and persists in the body for decades before it destroys one's liver or causes liver cancer. The vaccine is a very effective way and has dramatically reduced the risk of getting hepatitis B. Chickenpox is an example that has some people scratching their heads because they remember how it seemed to be a natural part of childhood when they were young. But in fact, Mayo Clinic did research in the 1970s that showed chickenpox actually injures and harms a significant percent of normal children. Our vaccinating against chickenpox now has wiped out what was routinely accepted as just a rite of passage. It also reduces the risk of lifelong shingles. Measles, it's far safer to get the vaccine than it is to get a case of measles. And the same actually goes for flu. People do much better with the flu vaccine than they ever do with a case of flu. We have one glaring exception among the vaccines we use, the dengue fever vaccine that we use in the American territories to prevent dengue fever can only be given to people who have already had one bout of dengue fever. That vaccine actually would be harmful to give to a person who's had no history of dengue fever. They would get a far worse case of dengue fever the first time they get it. But when you give it to veterans who have previously had infection, it reduces their risk nearly to zero of getting dengue fever. So in almost all situations, the vaccine is not only more effective in inducing immunity, but it's also much safer than the natural disease. Yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about a couple of questions on the mechanics of giving the immunizations. Any problems giving more than one at a time? In general, no. We do have some vaccines that can't be given at the same time. Those include the 15-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine that was introduced this year. We really need to wait 2 to 12 months before giving the 23-valent pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine these two pneumococcal vaccines interact and cause a person not to respond to the second vaccine if given too soon. Frankly, studies of babies show that overall less pain and discomfort when they get all their vaccines on the same day rather than spreading it out over weeks or months. Parents and grandparents who think that getting more than one vaccine at a time is harmful to a baby really need to rethink that. The evidence shows otherwise. Babies have less discomfort when they get all the vaccines due rather than having them spread out over time. There's another problem with not getting all the vaccines you're due for right now at this visit. It leaves you at risk for the diseases until you get those vaccines. It delays your opportunity to get immunity. These schedules that would delay vaccines and dole them out one at a time are doing the patient no service and are leaving the patient at higher risk. And how about pregnancy? Are there some vaccines we should avoid during pregnancy? Yes. While most 
vaccines can be given during pregnancy. And in fact, some should be given during pregnancy. Uh, there are a few other vaccines we don't give in pregnancy. Now, here's some examples of vaccines that we give on purpose during pregnancy. The tetanus, diphtheria, acellular pertussis vaccine. Whether the woman was due for it or not when she wasn't pregnant, once she becomes pregnant, we actually want to vaccinate relatively late in the pregnancy around week 27 to no later than week 36 gestation to give that baby pertussis protection in the first six months of life while we're waiting for the three doses of pertussis containing vaccine that infant gets to get protected. In that way, we protect the baby from whooping cough, which can kill a baby less than a year of age. We also give the flu vaccine on purpose in pregnancy, primarily to protect the pregnant woman, but also the timing of the flu vaccine will also allow the newborn baby to have protection the first six months against flu before that baby's body is old enough to respond to flu vaccine starting at six months of age. Similarly, a mother who has not been previously immune to hepatitis B should get the hepatitis B vaccine during pregnancy to give her the protection that she needs. There are other vaccines that should be given in pregnancy if they're needed. These include the COVID-19 vaccines, both the Pfizer and Moderna, as well as the Novavax vaccine sh should be given during pregnancy rather than wait until after pregnancy. COVID-19 as a disease is a wicked thing. And in pregnancy, the complication rates increase fivefold. Hepatitis A should also be given when needed in pregnancy, as well as the quadrivalent meningococcal vaccine. There are vaccines, as I mentioned, that shouldn't be given in pregnancy. For theoretical reasons, because they are live vaccines, we do not give the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine or chickenpox vaccine during pregnancy. And that also includes a live attenuated influenza flu vaccine that we otherwise would give healthy adults two through 49 years of age as a decent alternative to the injectable flu vaccine. There's also two vaccines where we just lack the scientific evidence to say that it's safe and effective to do so. And that's the human papillomavirus vaccine and the meningococcal B strain vaccine. Well, we're getting into the influenza season, so I'm going to ask you a question that I've heard multiple answers to, so I'm going to get it from an expert here. Is there any reason to delay the influenza vaccine until later in the fall? I mean, I think you could have gotten it as early as at least a month, maybe even two months ago from local pharmacies. Is there a problem getting it too early? Does your immunity wane towards late winter, early spring? It has been in some studies, a problem for people 65 years and older, that they get their vaccine in July or August, and they may not have immunity in the late spring. One of the impacts of the pandemic on influenza has been that we are seeing all across the United States continued outbreaks of flu in April, May, and June. And so now the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices has made it clear that in general, people should be getting their flu vaccine in September and October and not earlier. 
with particular attention to those who are 65 years and older really should make an effort to wait to September or October rather than to get it when it's convenient, when they happen to be at a pharmacy in August and the pharmacy's offering it. Now, there are two groups of people who may benefit from getting their vaccine as early as it's available in July or August, and that would include pregnant women who, by getting it that early, won't suffer the waning that older people might in the late spring, but they'll be giving their baby to, born early in the flu season protection against the flu we can't start vaccinating a baby before six months of age because the baby's body just ignores the flu vaccine when given before that. This gives the baby protection until then. The other group that could benefit from an early dose of flu vaccine are children getting the flu vaccine for the first time who are less than nine years of age. Children getting the flu vaccine on the first time need to get two doses that season, 28 days or more apart. So it's a race against time to get those children up to date before flu starts circulating. Uh, it's hard enough to get everybody in your family in for their flu vaccines in the fall, but it's even harder to get that child who needs two doses this year, those two doses. In fact, it has been a point of concern that perhaps only 30% of the children who are due for that second dose actually get it. I think you answered my next question in your latest comments, but I want to ask it again anyway. Let's say a patient is fortunate enough not to get influenza and they did not receive the influenza vaccine. So they made it through the winter. So we're in April, May, June. Is there a reason for them to get the influenza vaccine at that time? Yes. I can't stress this enough, and Mayo Clinic makes it very clear to its patients and its staff, we are vaccinating through June. Flu is a year-round disease. We talk about the big seasonal upswing that we see in wintertime, but it never really goes away completely. We have, particularly with our focus on identifying COVID-19 tests regularly for the flu, and we keep getting positives of flu. It's not just a wintertime illness. Even before the pandemic, outbreaks persisted into late spring, and states like Minnesota often had big outbreaks in long-term care facilities, hospitals, and schools in April, May, and even into June. Now, since the pandemic, those kind of outbreaks have shifted to late spring, not just in our months, not just in our states like Minnesota and Wisconsin, but around the country. You mentioned the uh, pneumococcal vaccine. I want to spend a little, just a touch time on that. It was confusing enough when we had uh, one vaccine, and now I think we have three. So what's the current recommendations on using the three different pneumococcal vaccines out there? And if a patient has had the first two, do they need that third, the 20-valent vaccine? It's been a series of changes over the decades. And in part, it's from the success of vaccination. Let me explain. We began vaccinating all infants and young children with a 13-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. Meanwhile, we had been vaccinating our adult patients, 65 years and older, with the 23-valent pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine. Turns out infants don't respond well to pure polysaccharide vaccines, and conjugating those polysaccharides with protein 
made children under two years of age able to see the vaccine and respond to it. It's the basis why our conjugated Haemophilus influenza B vaccines have been so successful. Well, we started having that success with the 13-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. In fact, the vaccine seemed to work so well for a while in the US and in other countries, we're actually giving both the 13-valent and the 23-valent to our adults 65 years and older, as well as younger adults in high-risk groups. But that 13-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine program for children actually wiped out those 13 strains for the adults 65 years and older through herd immunity. Vaccinating all those infants and children really made those 13 strains a thing of the past. And in fact, our country stopped vaccinating those at 65 years and older with the 13 valent because of the success story with the children. Now we have two new vaccines this year, a 15 valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine and a 20 valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. Now healthcare organizations working with adults 65 years and older, as well as with young adults 19 years through 64 who have medical conditions that put them at risk for invasive pneumococcal disease have a choice. These practices need to choose between the 20 valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, which you give once and then you're done for life. So if you have a risk factor between 19 and 64, you get that vaccine. When you turn 65, you're still done. You don't get any more vaccines. It gives a nice, long, enduring immunity against the strains of pneumococcus that are still circulating in adults. If you choose to go with the 15-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, then you need to follow it two to 12 months later with a 23-valent pneumococcal con uh, polysaccharide vaccine, the length of time really matters on whether you have a immunocompromising condition, a CSF leak or a cochlear implant, then you might choose to go with two months. Otherwise, you need to wait 12 months to avoid the interference of the two vaccines. So those patients who get a 15-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine need that 23-valent, and then they're done. Those who have received a 13-valent pneumococcal conjugate from the old recommendations, the current recommendations say just finish the old schedule with that 23-valent pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine now and then again when you turn 65. It's confusing. Groups need to make a decision. Once they've made a decision, it will be clear how to manage these exceptions it sounds like a lot of alphabet soup, but it actually represents major advances in preventing what was a common invasive bacterial disease that we really have got great control of now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wasn't even aware of the 15-valent vaccine. You mentioned monkeypox earlier. Who should we be concerned about and consider a monkeypox vaccine? Right now, we're in a bit of a problem in that we know that the disease continues to persist in the United States, not necessarily from sexual contact, but from skin-to-skin -skin contact, often giving pretty severe cases to infants and children, but originated in other countries and spread with people who are at high risk for monkeypox, including males who have sex with males. 
right now we have two vaccines that are effective in preventing it. One vaccine that has a restricted use because it's a live vaccine and can only be given to adults 18 years and older and shouldn't be given to somebody with eczema, somebody with immunocompromising condition, or, or someone who lives in a household with somebody who has eczema or immunocompromising condition, and that's the smallpox vaccine. We also have a new inactivated vaccine, the Genios vaccine, that can be given to an immunocompromised person, that can be given to a child, that gives effective immunity, but we have so little of it. So our state health departments are targeting people at the highest risk, and we are vaccinating them first. These would include asymptomatic people who are at very high risk for exposure. They are the ones now to get the vaccine. We're also vaccinating people who work in the lab with samples testing for monkeypox. Each state has a slightly different variation on how they're doling out this very small supply of vaccine. As we build up supply, more and more people who are at risk should be getting the vaccine and the state health departments will work with local practices to help guide them forward. Okay. Now, probably the most important question I'll ask during this interview, how can we as healthcare providers increase the likelihood that our patients will receive all the immunizations that's recommended for them? Okay, first and foremost, you need to understand that as I'm speaking to you healthcare providers that your recommendation is taken very seriously. Your patients seek out your advice. When you make a strong recommendation for the vaccine, you are really putting your best foot forward. When you make the vaccination sound like a choice, like an option, rather than what is due and what is recommended, you're setting yourself up for failure. When providers use the language of recommendation, you're due for this now, you should get this today, as opposed to language like, what are your thoughts about getting a flu vaccine today? Do you want to get the COVID vaccine today? The difference in acceptance is just immense. You go from an 80 to 90% acceptance to a three to 13% effectiveness uh, uh, in terms of your ability to get your patient vaccinated today. Remember of all the medical treatments that you have available to your patients, this is the safest, closest monitored. And in many cases, you are recommending something that will avoid dangerous and harmful treatments if in fact the vaccine preventable disease occurs. You have a treatment that's needed, effective, safe, and without reasonable alternatives. So make a strong recommendation. That's job number one. Number two, use every encounter with a patient to make clear your strong recommendations for those vaccines do. Make sure if you're using electronic health record that you're getting the prompts for the vaccines to make sure they're not turned off and, and, and don't become blind to the prompts of what preventive services are offered. Use every visit the ankle sprain, the return for a persistent cough, the question about a fracture, a visit to you for a mental health concern. Use those visits to get the person's vaccines up to date. Don't put it off until some wonderful opportunity might be scheduled in the future for you to vaccinate your patient. Do it today. 
All of us providers need to keep recommending the flu vaccine through the entire season. We need to not give up on our patients who hesitated or delayed. Instead, take their hesitancy seriously and address their concerns. They are not looking to become junior physicians or junior scientists. Don't give them something to read after the visit. Answer their questions, frankly, right now and help them move towards making a decision in your office. Don't put off vaccination for a better encounter that may never happen in the future. Bob, we found in our group, this was years ago, that our immunization rates went way up when we took the recommendation of giving the immunizations out of the physician's hands and put them in the nursing staff's hands. Is there evidence that shows that that's true? There is such strong evidence. Standing orders or nurse protocols where your nurse can act based on algorithmic questions that clear the patient of contraindications and precautions and allow you to vaccinate your patients without you having to individually write orders. We do this at Mayo Clinic. It is a strongly recommended practice for every healthcare organization to adopt standing orders or nurse protocols to take what you know your patients need done out of your hands so it's not an action that requires your attention and imagination and uh, recall at the moment. You have too many things that you're juggling. Those things that you know need to be done every time, give it to your nursing staff and stop trying to do it all. So the statement, the nurses call the shots holds true. Oh yes, yes. Whenever your practice needs something done every single time to your patient, assign it to your nurses. Stop trying to remember to do everything yourself. Well, we've been discussing an update on immunizations with Dr. Robert Jacobson from the Department of Pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always great to have you as a guest, and uh, we look forward to having you again back next year. Thank you so much. I love this opportunity to speak to physicians about their concerns, and I know vaccines has been a big concern for your patients, so I know that you're struggling with it too. I thank you very much for the opportunity. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week 